Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Today, we are here with Amy Morin. She is the author of the international bestseller, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. She is the expert on parenting teens and child discipline for very well. She writes for Forbes Psychology Today. Her TED Talk has over seven and a half million views, and she's here today to talk about her brand new book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, Raising Self-Assured Children and Training Their Brains for a Life of Happiness, Meaning, and Success. Amy has a unique experience as not only a professor who teaches the science of this stuff to college students, but also as a therapist and as a foster parent to many kids who have come through her home. And she shares these amazing insights in her book. We can't wait to get her on the show here and start talking about how you can instill mental strength in your teenager and how you can really capitalize on moments that most parents might see as a bad thing, how you can start seeing those as a good thing and actually using them as opportunities to teach your teenager really important skills. So can't wait to start talking about all of that and more. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I'd love to just dive into this book. Uh, this is the follow-up to the first book, which was 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And now we have 13 Things Mentally Strong parents don't do. There's so much content in here, but I'm really curious. Why did you think after writing the first book and getting such a positive reaction on it that we needed a more specific book for parents? It really came out of the questions I had from readers. The, I kept getting the same question yeah. over and over again, where people kept saying, how do we teach kids how to be mentally strong? And I yeah, could right. have written a book for kids, but I don't know too many 10-year-olds that would read the book and then be able to apply it. So I really wanted to teach parents, how do you become a mental strength coach? Because I think yeah. you know, the other comment I kept getting from readers was, I just wish I would have learned this 20 or 30 years ago. So I think it would be so powerful if we can start teaching kids uh, how to do this stuff now so that when they grow up, they'll already have a whole bunch of tools that they can use. Yeah, you know, I've seen research actually that the order that we teach kids concepts in elementary school is maybe like backwards, where their brain is actually better learning to read a little bit later and certain math things a little later, but maybe earlier we should be teaching them more like metacognitive skills and emotion regulation and just like basic social things and how to be mentally strong. Yeah, because you know, what good does it do? Let's say your kid becomes the tennis star or she's really good at math. But if she can't control her emotions, yeah. she's not going to succeed. And so I think it's super important. I don't know why we don't spend more time teaching kids. In fact, studies will show that even college kids, when they asked them, were you prepared for college? The vast majority of them say, well, academically I was. But 60% of right. them say, I don't have the social skills. I don't have the emotional skills that I needed. I don't know how to deal with being scared and lonely or depressed or anxious without my parents right here next to me. So I think it's so important that we start teaching these skills. 
Okay, so now the question is, is that just a phenomenon of going to college in general, or is that some sort of a symptom of this, you know, technology-driven world that they're growing up in now? I think that's definitely part of it. I think digital devices are great and they can be great tools, but I also think for kids, it gives them this escape. You know, when I was a kid, I had to be mm. bored sometimes. I had to, <laughs> yes. and if I was lonely, you know, I had to figure out how to deal with that. Or if I was sad, I had to figure out how do you cope with that. But I think so many kids mm. now use their their phones, their tablets, their laptops to, to sort of escape any uncomfortable emotions. Even when you see kids in the back of the car, instead of just having to look out the window and entertain themselves, they, they've got some sort of handheld device. And a lot of parents won't travel yeah. without something that will entertain their kids. And so kids don't know how do you deal with being bored or what happens when you have to do something you don't want to do. And I think that really is doing kids a disservice in a lot of ways. So uh, just the other day, over the weekend, my young cousin is eight years old, and he's on the flag football team. Their games of the season are just like right down the street from our house. So we've been going every week, and it's a total blast. You know, they're really short. But so it was the Super Bowl, the final game this weekend, <laughs> and they, they won first place. You know, he was like so excited. Uh, this kid is just like a natural athlete. He's like involved in every play, you know. He's just like all over the field. But so his mom was telling me that he just tried out for an indoor soccer team recently, a really good one, and he didn't get in. And it was kind of the first time he's such a natural athlete, you know, eight years old. He's everything he's ever tried to do. You know, he's totally been the best kid on the team. And she was like, I think it was really good for him, you know, to see that level and to not make it. And I thought it was so cool that she recognized that. And what you were saying really made me think of it where you were like, I had to be bored and I had to be lonely. And you used those kind of like negative words as positives almost. Right. And sometimes they are. Yeah, I think that's really cool to let kids be rejected sometimes. I know so many parents, yeah. if their kid doesn't make the all-star team, they go to bat for them and try to convince the coaches, yeah. put my kid on the team. No, this is a life lesson. You're it's missing a the point. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> if your kid fails sometimes, that's great because not making the team isn't the worst thing in the world. And you want them to know, how do you fail? How do you be rejected? How do you not be the best? Because you're not always sure. going to be the best in life. So what I thought was really cool about this book is that, like you said, it's about how to teach your kids how to be more mentally strong, but also it's kind of about how to be more mentally strong as a parent. You know, you had some really emotional stories in this book of parents who are really struggling to get control of their teenagers. And you make a good point, which is that just because your kid isn't listening to you doesn't mean that they're not listening to anybody, right? Parents are quick to, you know, say, oh, my kid is doing this wrong, my kid's doing that wrong. And, you know, everything that's wrong is something that's wrong with the kid. But uh, a lot of times, maybe there's things that you could do as a parent that maybe if you were a little more mentally strong in some ways, then that would allow you to have more influence over your kid. Yeah, I think for a lot of parents, it's tough to know, okay, when I tell my kid not to do something and he still does it, then he's not listening yeah. to me. And it can be threatening to them then if an uncle, an aunt, a doctor, somebody, a teacher, coach, somebody gives your kid advice and they listen to that advice, the same advice uh, you gave them from somebody else, parents feel bad. It's like, what the heck? Right. To know that, you know, that's just the way it is. I think all of us sometimes rolled our eyes when our parents gave us a lecture or advice about something. And that's just part of the way it's supposed to be. 
But to know that as a parent, your kids pay way more attention to what you do rather than what you say. And so if you are dealing with Mm. tough things in your life in a way that is healthy, then your kids learn how how to deal with that by watching you. And even though you think that they're not watching, they are. And they're picking up on all of these little things. How do you handle problems in your life? Or do you spend a lot of time complaining? Or do you go in there and solve problems in a creative way? All of these things that you do every single day is what your kid is picking up on. I like that. And it's funny because I'm working on a book right now. And one of the things that the editor had recently come back with was that as an expert, it's our job to kind of like help people find the fine line between, you know, when to do one thing and when to do another thing. And where's the subtleties there? And there's an idea in your book that I really liked called speak up or shut up. And you talk about how, you know, Sometimes you, you want your kids to be proactive and to say, you know, Hey, wait a minute. You know, what about me? I didn't get one. Or right. Like sometimes you, you do want them to speak up and then sometimes it's time to shut up and, and learn a lesson and, you know, show some respect for an adult or whatever and don't say anything or say, I'm sorry or whatever. And kind of helping them to find that line. I wonder how you do that as a parent. Yeah, that's a challenge. I think I, you know, how do you teach your kids to be, to advocate for themselves, but to advocate at the right time? Yeah. So if the teacher says, everybody did a great job today, and now the whole class gets a piece of candy, but she somehow overlooked your kid and forgot to pass one out to him, you want him to be able to raise his hand and say, can I have mine? But on the other hand, if he's in the baseball game and the umpire calls a a strike and he thinks it was a ball, you don't want him to turn around to the umpire and start to argue. (laughs) Sure. And so I think it's about having conversations with your child to say, when, when do you speak up? And what if it's an authority figure? If somebody's bossing you around, when do you need to listen? But when do you also need to say, hey, I'm not going to do that? And, mm-hmm. you know, if your coach tells you to do something, then you should usually do it. But maybe there's something that you think, you know, that's not safe or I don't want to do it. And I think it's just a lot of conversations with kids and a lot of, again, role modeling. Yeah. Somebody cuts in line in front of you at the grocery store. Do you speak up? Well, it sort of depends, right? Um, you know, you get pulled over by the police and he says you were speeding and you don't think you were. What do you do? And I think pointing it out to kids, you know, right. I, I didn't speak up when that elderly person cut in front of me because I thought that doesn't matter and that's okay and we'll let that person go first. It was probably a mistake versus right. it was malicious. What's the intent behind it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And having all of those sorts of conversations because I think there are learning moments and kids don't always understand why we do certain things and they leave it up to their own interpretation if we don't explain it to them. You were talking about how sometimes you might need to talk about encouraging them to speak up more and sometimes you might need to be encouraging them, you know, not to. And I wonder, like, as a parent, you probably would know that a kid has a certain tendency in one direction to the other. So I can see there being, like, from the kid's perspective, sort of, like, recognizing that your parent is, like, trying to kind of modify your behavior or something like that. Like, I'm really fascinated by this, like, idea of reactance. I think it's just just so big with parent-child dynamics, especially during the teenage years where kids are trying to differentiate from their parents. So if you got a shy kid, then when you have this conversation, you're going to be like mostly trying to encourage them like on times when they can speak up more, right? Do you think that we ever have to kind of like watch out when we're having those types of conversations? And how do we keep that in mind or do it in a way that doesn't cause a defensive reaction in a kid? Yeah, I think it's important to take notice of, you know, when you're encouraging your child to do something different that your child is going to probably push back for several reasons. First of all, because you're mom or dad. Also, because it's not 
comfortable to them. If you have a kid who is impulsive and just blurts out, that's not fair every time sure. something happens and you're trying to teach him, you know, how do you, how do you not do that? I got to restrain this impulse and yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And you know, one problem some parents struggle with is each of their kids are different. So you might have one kid that you're trying to say, you need to speak up more. And, but yet you're turning to the other kid and saying, quit speaking up so much. And from kids' perspectives, they think, well, that's not fair. I don't understand. So again, I just think it's about having ongoing conversations and explaining, you know, what are the pros and cons? If you speak up and you yell at the umpire, what might happen? And just talking to kids about the consequences. And sometimes it's about letting them make mistakes and letting them face the natural consequences. If you speak up to your coach and you say, I'm not going to do that, well, maybe you don't get to play in the game. Or if you speak up to your teacher and say, you know, I deserve an A, even though I got 12 answers wrong. Well, let's see what your teacher says to you about that. And so I think, uh, you know, there's a fine line and there's no right or wrong answers. And sometimes for parents, it's a, it's an experiment. Well, let's see what happens if I let him make this mistake. And then is he going to learn a lesson from it too? So you have a really unique experience on the differences between kids because of your experience as a foster parent. You write about this in your book, like all these different kids who have come through your home and who you've cared for. It must just give you a really unique lens into kind of how unique each kid is and how you need to adapt to different kids. So I wonder if kind of what you were just saying is like you run like little tests almost like uh, see what happens if we let them fail at this or see what happens. Is that like your process or how do you kind of rapidly like sort of assess like where a kid is and how you might have to like behave differently yourself? Yeah, it's an experiment sort of in itself. So when I get a foster child, sometimes it's I get a call at two o'clock in the afternoon and it says, somebody says, hey, can you take this kid? They're going to be there in an hour. And I basically have no information other than when somebody drops them off, they hand me a few pieces of paper and give me a maybe a 10 minute rundown and then they leave. And I'm I'm with this child that uh, is a complete, we're strangers. And I have no idea, you know, what sort of things I might encounter. So it's sort of like being, starting out fairly strict and having some tight rules and then figuring out how much can I relax those rules? How much can I let them explore while trusting that they're going to to be okay? Yeah. So I do a lot of, a lot of that where, you know, sometimes we Mm -hmm. loosen the reins a little too much and you got to tighten them back up. But I think it's similar for, for parents as your kid grows, Mm -hmm. you have to figure out how much can I loosen the reins? How much freedom can I give them? And then when they mess up to know, okay, are they learning a lesson from this? Do I need to, do I need to step in and give them more guidance? Do I need to teach them certain skills that they don't have yet? You know, there's no right or wrong answer when it comes to parenting decisions. It's more of an art than a science, I think a lot of times. But it strikes me that the method you describe is such a microcosm of parenting in general, right? Right. Of starting strict and then relaxing, 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 and seeing how much you can relax until you kind of get to, I guess, what, what we were talking about earlier, finding that fine line between how do you walk the line between giving them more freedom and holding firm to, you know, some kind of rules and where does that line need to be for this particular kid? And it's probably different in every situation. I think that's so interesting. So you talk about teaching teenagers to tolerate fear, which I think is cool. We touched kind of on emotional regulation, but we do alcohol research in our lab, adolescent risk behaviors. And I think a lot of that really comes down to emotion regulation. Students who are using substances to cope with negative affect of various kinds. You talk about normalizing your teen's uncomfortable feelings by kind of 
talking about the stuff that's happened to you as well. What else are good ways to help teens learn about tolerating fear? I think it's uh, having some conversations about it. We tend to minimize kids' fear, and we think we're doing them a favor by saying, oh, it's not a big deal, or that presentation will be over before you know it. Don't even worry about it. Mm. Well, they are worried about it, so it's better to talk to them about it. Yeah, mm. you know, what are your worries? What's, what's the worst thing that could happen? Tell me about it. What's scaring you? And then talk about, well, how do you cope with that scary feeling? Maybe you decide I'm going to call a friend. Maybe I'm going mm. to uh, write in a journal. But to give them concrete coping strategies and to know that just because something feels scary doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't do it. And with teens, you walk a fine line, right? Sometimes we know teens take really ridiculous risks, whether they're speeding in a car or they're experimenting with drugs or they're out there doing this sort of crazy stunts, <laughs> yet giving a presentation in class is terrifying. I think, well, I can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so to have conversations <laughs> about, you know, danger and actual risk and, you know, how your fear isn't related to the actual level of risk, just because it feels ah. scary to, to give a presentation to your class doesn't mean it's actually dangerous. But on the other hand, just don't minimize their fear, but to acknowledge, yeah, when something feels really scary, how do you get through it? Maybe your heart beats fast, maybe your face turns red, your palms get sweaty and you start thinking everybody's laughing at me. Whatever it is, it's, you know, yeah, we all experience that sometimes and how do you, how do you get yeah. through it? I mean, this just is like such a theme of your book, I think, that those kinds of negatives are, are actually positives, kind of like we were talking earlier, right? I, I love what you're saying. An instance where your teenager is uh, having some anxiety is like afraid and the reaction as a parent is just to like assuage the feeling or, you know, it makes us feel bad too if our kid is feeling bad, I think, right? So it's like, we want to just like stop this negative feeling as fast as possible. But it's like, actually, this isn't something bad that we want to get rid of. This is like, we want to explore this. This is good because it's an opportunity for us to teach them some mental strength skills. And I always love when you can like just adjust your mindset like that and start to see things from a different perspective. And that one's really cool, I think. Yeah, I think any opportunity when you look at your child struggling with anything is to say, you know, what what skills can I teach my child? How do I turn this into a teachable moment and give them that gift rather than just trying to take that away from them rather than solving the problems for them or convincing them that their concerns aren't a big deal. Teach them how do you deal with problems in life? Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to A, write this incredible book because I know this was not an easy thing to write. It's massive. I really hope that lots of people pick it up because it's an incredible book and packed with a lot of great insight and backed by research. Well, thank you so much. We're here with Amy Morin talking about things that mentally strong parents don't do. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. For so many families, it's been eye-opening. They said, you know, I got to know my kids sort of on a deeper yeah. level because when they're talking, I just hear what comes out of their mouth. But it's like when they write in a journal, it's like I get to know what they're also thinking. Huh. I can't tell you how many parents have come into my therapy office and they say, well, I don't let my kid use technology. And the parent leaves the room and the kid says, well, I've had a blog on Tumblr for five years. <laughs> and parents just have no idea. And, you know, I think right. it's much better to just educate yourself. So I think it's just important to have conversations with kids that, yes, everybody is trying to create a life on 
social media sites like Instagram that shows that they're perfect, they're happier than they feel, and that their lives are better than everyone else's. And just having those conversations with kids and to let them know it's okay sometimes. And you can take a picture of something that isn't flattering or just have fun with social media. It doesn't have to be a contest about who's happier or better looking or who gets the most likes. Yeah, it's important for parents to show, okay, I'm in charge, but to also show I value your opinion. And it's a sort of a fine yeah, line. It's another one of those. Right. Of giving kids choices, you just have to make sure that you can live with either choice. Sure. You know, so when they're young, hopefully you start out and you say, do you want water to drink or ice water? Right. And just letting kids have those little choices. And then, you know, as they're growing up to let them know, yeah, you can clean your room whenever you want. You can't use your phone until your room's clean, but you make that decision. Yeah. Rather than saying, you can't use your phone until your room's clean, say, yeah, you can use your phone. Just have to clean your room right, As soon as you're done. <laughs> you know, I think it's just about apologizing for your, specifically for what you did to say, you know, I yelled, I lost my cool, mm -hmm. and make it clear, well, you still got to clean your room. I'm just apologizing because, you know, my emotions got the best of me. Uh... Uh, so many kids, I think, grow up and say, well, I can't do that because my parents said I can't. Instead of, I can't do that because it's unsafe. And so just to make sure that kids know what the, what the reason is behind your rules so that they don't end up testing them later on. And when they ask kids too, they say, well, would your parent rather your teacher said you were the smartest kid or the uh. nicest kid in class? The vast majority of kids say, oh, my parent wants me to be the smartest kid. And then when they ask the parents, what would you rather have? Almost all the parents said, I'd rather have the nicest kid uh. in class. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.